Alrighty, thank you so much for joining us for tonight's Connected Conversation, a program conducted by the Idaho Humanities Council. If you're not familiar with our organization, I encourage you to check out our website, idahohumanities.org. I'd also like to remind you all that you may submit any questions using the Q&A feature located at the bottom of the screen. With me tonight is Laura Jensky, and it's a pleasure to have you with us tonight, and I turn it over to you. Okay, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm going to go ahead and start my slides because as I was telling, as I was saying that I have a camera here, I have to look around it. <laughs> okay, there we go. Okay, um, I would like to spend about 35 minutes telling you two stories and then uh, sharing some thoughts that I have about the current COVID vaccines. I will talk about smallpox because I think smallpox is just a wonderful illustration of how a combination of luck and persistence can solve a problem that really seems insolvable. And then I'll talk about polio because polio is an example of how external influences, external forces uh, outside of science can affect vaccine development. Uh, let me say that my opinions are my opinions. They're not necessarily those of the Idaho Humanities Council. And also I'm gonna show you some uh, images of smallpox and some people may find these images rather disturbing. So smallpox, a truly horrific disease. It's caused by the variola virus, which is a DNA pox virus. And it starts with just simple flu-like symptoms and then rash and then pus-filled sores that scab over. So it, it really is a terrible disease to have, but it's a very old disease. Uh, and it's passed human to human, which means that there's no ant animal intermediate. Uh, there are no bats or rats or fleas or mosquitoes that will carry this variola virus. It has to be passed human to human. So it probably didn't arise as a human condition until people started living in communities, like after the uh, beginning of agricultural settlements about uh, 10,000 BC. You can find evidence of smallpox in mummified remains uh, like the Egyptian pharaoh uh, Ramses V that would have been in the 1100s BC. But it really wasn't until the fourth century that you find uh, written descriptions of smallpox. Well, as I said, a horrific disease, a very high mortality rate for smallpox, about 30%. And, and that's a rather misleading number because for the vulnerable, very old, the very young, people with certain diseases, the mortality rate could be upwards of 90%. And even if you survive smallpox, you'd be uh, badly disfigured, especially on the face, uh, because that's where you have the most uh, sebaceous glands, that is oil producing glands. And so that's where you get the most pock marks. Um, and in addition to the pox, the sores would sometimes get infected and you'd have tissue damage, uh, including tissue loss. Like you look at the, this picture of this poor woman in this photograph, she's lost part of her face uh, due to smallpox. 
Uh, blindness was another problem. So as you can well imagine, people, even though they didn't understand smallpox, they didn't understand what it was, they were desperate for some relief from it. Well, over time, there evolved a method for some protection against smallpox. It's a method called inoculation or more specifically variolation. And that's a procedure where you take matter out of the pus-filled sores and you deliberately infect another person with the hope that they might get a real mild case of smallpox and then be prevented from getting a full-blown case. If you can see this slide in the upper corner, uh, one method for variolation was to actually inhale the dried scabs off of people's skin. Uh, another method that was practiced more in the Middle East and in Africa was to take pus matter and scratch it into the skin using these pretty scary looking instruments here. And so as awful as that sounds, variolation actually did work to some degree. It lessened disease severity, uh, but it also caused disease and sometimes it even caused death. One person that I want to talk about who would have known about variolation uh, is a person called uh, Lady Mary Wortley Montague. And she was the wife of the British ambassador to Turkey. Uh, Mary grew up in an aristocratic English family. Uh, she was apparently quite this free spirit. She was a voracious reader, read all the books in her family's library. Um, and that gave her quite an education, which was unusual for a female in, at that time. This would have been the late 17th century. Well, in 1712, Mary eloped with Edward Wortley Montague uh, against her father's wishes, and the newlyweds went to London. And Mary was a beautiful woman. Uh, she was smart. So her beauty and her wit made her a fairly prominent feature uh, at the royal court. But sadly, about three years into her marriage, uh, Lady Montague contracted smallpox. Although she survived, uh, but she was disfigured. Her lovely face was, was badly marked. And on top of that, she had just two years earlier lost her favorite brother to smallpox. So Lady Montague was really passionate about finding some cure for this terrible disease. Well, when her husband was uh, assigned to Turkey, Lady Montague followed him there, and that's where she learned about variolation. Um, she would, would see these elder Turkish women who would, in a ritual, use smallpox to attempt to prevent uh, a full-blown case of smallpox. So when Lady Montague realized that they were going back to London, where smallpox was endemic, she had her five-year-old son variolated by the uh, embassy physician. And when she got back to London, she had her daughter variolated and she did it very publicly. Uh, the same physician did the variolation. Well, as you can imagine, the medical community didn't think very highly of that. They didn't take variolation seriously. They thought it was some superstitious folk medicine. 
And of course, she was a woman, so they didn't take her seriously. But as I told you, she had some standing at court and she had the ear of Caroline, the Princess of Wales. And she persuaded Caroline to ask her father-in-law, the king, to have the royal family variolated. Well, the king agreed to test variolation. He had it tested on prisoners and orphans in asylum. Sounds bad. Um, but the results were actually quite promising. Uh, it had reduced the mortality for variolate for uh, smallpox uh, down from 30% to 2 to 3%. So the king agreed that the females in the royal family uh, could be variolated. He wasn't going to risk his male heirs. And that gave uh, some credibility credibility to variolation and the medical establishment began to accept it. And throughout the 1700s, variolation became the, uh, the fairly common method to attempt to, to protect against smallpox. But variolation had risks. It wasn't regulated and quite often it was combined with other pretty risky procedures like purging and bloodletting. So um, there were deaths, there were bad cases associated with variolation, but still it was the only game in town uh, throughout the 1700s. So enter Edward Jenner. Dr. Jenner was an English physician. He himself had been variolated, so he knew how awful the procedure could be. And he lived out in the country which means he was aware that persons who had been exposed to a different pox disease of a pox of cows, very cleverly called cowpox, he was aware that those persons didn't get smallpox. And the story goes that Dr. Jenner was so inspired by the beauty of the milkmaid's faces that, that he tested cowpox. Well, you know, that's probably not true, but Jenner was inspired to do scientific studies of cowpox. So what he did is he took uh, material from a cowpox lesion on the milkmaid Sarah Nelms. Here's a drawing on the slide of the milkmaid's hand. And he used that uh, pustular material to vaccinate uh, a young boy named James Phipps. Uh, if you're interested, the slide in, in the uppermost corner is what cowpox looks like on a cow. Anyway, uh, so Jenner scratched the cowpox material into, in, under the skin of this young boy. And then a few weeks later, he exposed the boy to smallpox. And James didn't get smallpox, so Jenner exposed him to smallpox again, and the boy didn't get smallpox then either. And you know, you may be saying, oh, wait, wait a minute, how that is totally unethical to be experimenting on children. Um, well, actually, not really, not for the time, because um, James would have been exposed to smallpox anyway, probably uh, as variolation, because there was, you know, an economic reason. Uh, to do so. So uh, again, the, it was not considered unethical. 
Dr. Jenner is the person that gave us the term vaccination. He used the Latin word for cow, vacca, uh, to coin that particular term. So that occurred, this uh, work with the, the boy James Phipps occurred in 1796, and Jenner continued his experiments with other, uh, let's call them volunteers. And in 1798, Dr. Jenner published his work in a small booklet. Well, the medical community had sort of mixed reactions to his work, um, but Dr. Jenner was altruistic. Uh, he not only shared his knowledge, but he shared his cowpox vaccine. And over time, London physicians began to use this vaccination procedure themselves. And more and more of the medical community became on board with this idea that this using cowpox to, to protect against smallpox was safer and just as effective, if not more effective. Society, on the other hand, um, had quite a bit of, shall we call it, anti-vaccine sentiment. You can, if you can see this cartoon in the slide here, these are, uh, it's a cartoon of people who have been inoculated with uh, or vaccinated with cowpox and they have cows popping out all over them. But over time, uh, vaccination became more accepted. Uh, vaccination with cowpox was brought to America by the physician Benjamin Waterhouse. Uh, Dr. Waterhouse was a friend of Edward Jenner's. And um, in 1800, when he brought vaccination to America, he received the endorsement of then President Thomas Jefferson. And that's actually remarkable because Jefferson was known for being a harsh critic of well, modern medicine for the time, modern for the time. So when President Jefferson endorsed vaccination, there was more acceptance of it in the new world. And, and America was already primed uh, for this because variolation was already practiced here. Variolation, the use of smallpox to protect against smallpox was introduced to this country by African slaves, uh, one of them in particular, Onesimus, uh, shown here, uh, told the man who owned him, Cotton Mather, about that variolation and the benefits and the procedure. Cotton Mather, you may recognize that name, that's the uh, Puritan minister who had some peripheral involvement in the Salem witch trials. Well, Mather publicized variolation widely. Uh, it was used by General Washington during the Revolutionary War because, I mean, Washington lost as many troops, if not more, to smallpox than in battle. By 1813, uh, President Madison uh, enacted into law an, uh, a law called an Act to Encourage Vaccination. It created the United States Vaccine Agency and it instructed the Postal Service to deliver the cowpox vaccine at no charge. So while this was happening in America, back in England, Edward Jenner died. He died in 1823 of a stroke. And at the time he died, he was about equally praised for his enormous contribution to uh, vaccination and also vilified for his work. 
About 17 years after his death, variolation, the actual use of smallpox, the, the procedure that Lady Montague had brought to England was banned in England in favor of vaccination. So let's fast forward and go into the 20th century. By the 1940s, the technology for freeze drying was perfected. And so the smallpox vaccine could be stored and distributed quite easily. And so could be uh, widely distributed worldwide, such that by 1980, the uh, World Health Assembly had declared the world free of smallpox. And that was a magnificent accomplishment in, well, what seemed like a very long time, but still in terms of vaccine development was only about 150 years, uh, less than 200 anyway. So as you know, we are not routinely vaccinated for smallpox anymore. There still is a smallpox vaccine. It's held in a stockpile for high risk cases such as laboratory workers. It's a, a vaccinia virus, it's a live virus attenuated that is weakened. It's uh, not the same as, but it's related to smallpox and cowpox. And it probably arose when the um, smallpox and cowpox vaccines were, uh, excuse me, viruses were passaged in animals and humans in order to perpetuate materials to use as vaccines. And, and we have vaccines like this today. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine for COVID-19 um, are uh, live viruses. They are non-virulent viruses, just like vaccinia is not a virulent virus. And uh, in the case of the COVID-19 viruses, they share some genetic material with the SARS-CoV-2 virus just like vaccinia shares genetic material with the smallpox virus and is able to uh, provide immunity against the smallpox. So I, I want to show you one more picture. Um, this picture here on the right side of the screen. These are two brothers photographed in the early 1900s. The boy on the right was vaccinated against smallpox. His brother on the left was not. And for me, if any image convinces me that vaccination is important, this image does it for me. So let's switch gears and talk about polio. I, I think we're probably more familiar with the disease polio than we are with smallpox. Uh, poliomyelitis is a muscle weakness and paralytic disease. It's caused by three, three strains of poliovirus, types one, two, and three. Type one is the most virulent strain. And it's another old disease. Uh, if you look back to Egyptian paintings, you know, 1300, 1400 BC, you can see pictures of children with withered limbs that are using sticks like crutches. But it wasn't until much later, 1789, that we actually got a clinical description of polio. Uh, described by a, an English physician. But polio was not a disease known for large outbreaks for most of its history. It wasn't really until the 
turn of the 20th century that polio virus became associated with outbreaks. And the reason for this is up, up to this point, up until about 1900, uh, polio virus was quite common in the environment. Uh, polio is uh, spread by the virus being uh, shed in fecal material, and then that contaminates the environment and other people ingest the virus orally and that spreads the disease, spreads the virus. Well, up until the time that sanitation methods were vastly improved, most infants would be exposed to polio virus in the environment while they were very young and they still had antibodies from their mothers um, in their bodies to protect them. So they would be exposed to polio virus, they would make an immune response and de develop their own lifelong immunity to polio at the time that mom's antibodies was helping to protect them from getting a full-blown paralytic disease. Well, once the sanitation procedures reduced the amount of polio virus in the environment, um, kids didn't get that early exposure to the polio virus. So they didn't make their own lifelong immunity while they still had mom's antibodies to protect them. And so they became more susceptible to the virus. Well, the first major outbreak, I mean, as a very large outbreak of polio virus or poliomyelitis uh, was in 1916 in the United States. Uh, in New York, there were more than 27,000 reported cases of polio and 6,000 deaths. Another important thing about this 1916 date is this heralded the beginning of the annual summer epidemics, outbreaks of polio. Parents became quite worried about letting their children be out among others during the summer. They kept them out of public places, kept them out of public pools, because they were very worried that their children would be uh, paralyzed for life. Now, I should mention that most infections by the polio virus are asymptomatic, or they cause only mild flu-like symptoms. But 5% of the infections actually uh, go on to develop paralytic uh, paralysis or weakened muscles. So even though it was only a 5% chance, parents were still terrified at the prospect. So by 1952, we had our uh, largest outbreak of polio ever. There were more than 57 reported cases, and that's just the reported cases, 3,000 deaths and more than 27,000 cases of paralysis. So parents were terrified and the cry for a polio vaccine was just absolutely deafening. Enter Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin. Um, these were not the only polios. They, they weren't the first ones by any means, but they were the two scientists who brought effective polio vaccines over the finish line. Uh, Dr. Salk at the University of Pittsburgh created a killed or inactivated 
uh, virus vaccine. And Albert Sabin at Cincinnati Children's Hospital created an attenuated or weakened uh, vaccine, also known as the oral polio vaccine. So a little tidbit of information, if you're interested, the last uh, natural case of polio that originated in the US was in 1979. So I like to talk about the race for a polio vaccine uh, because it, it so well illustrates how uh, forces outside of science can work on both the value and the limitations of science during the vaccine development. So let's start the story in 1952. This again, this was the peak of a polio outbreak. So Jonas Salk um, did a small clinical trial of his killed virus vaccine on institutionalized children. So these are children that are physically and mentally disabled. Uh, this is not how clinical trials are done today, but this was 1952. Well, the results were promising. The next year, uh, Dr. Salk vaccinated himself and he vaccinated his family. Uh, the media covered all of this. And with all this media coverage, the uh, public began to expect that there was a polio vaccine on the horizon. So there was some pressure there. There were some scientists, I have to admit, that were um, very critical of a killed vaccine. You have to remember at this time that vaccines were primarily attenuated or weakened viruses like the smallpox virus I just talked about, or like the, the uh, vaccines that were created by Louis Pasteur for rabies or for a couple of uh, bacterial diseases. Um, anthrax and chicken cholera. Albert Sabin in particular was critical. He said a killed vaccine was too risky. Um, and, if, and the fact that Jonas Salk used the most virulent form of the virus in his killed vaccine was even more problematic. Dr. Sabin said, you know, you should wait until an attenuated vaccine is available. Yeah, he worked on attenuated vaccines, you know, to be honest. But um, they didn't listen. And in 1954, there was a very large clinical trial, controlled clinical trial of children, where some children got the killed vaccine and other children got um, the placebo. Um, schools partnered with the clinical trial. So schools would send home consent forms to the parents and the consent form, made the parents ask to have their children in a clinical trial rather than just simply give permission. So it, it made participation in the trial um, an honor, a civic duty. It wasn't without some publicity problems though. So the well-known columnist Walter Winchell on one of his Sunday night radio broadcasts claimed uh, misclaimed, I should say, that the, that the vaccine had caused the death of monkeys in laboratory trials and the vaccine was a killer. Um, but people listened to, to Winchell and uh, 
that caused some of the parents to back off and say, oh, I, I don't want my kid in, in this clinical trial. But public health experts pushed back on Winchell and Jonas Salk also did. Uh, he called Walter Winchell a, uh, an armchair scientist, a sidewalk superintendent. And that helped, that pushback helped. Uh, quite a number of parents then said, yes, let's enroll my child. And the clinical trial went forward starting in April of 1954. Well, by 1955, they had some very encouraging results, a media frenzy. The reports came out that the vaccine, the killed vaccine for polio was 80 to 90% effective. So shortly thereafter, the vaccine was distributed widely and vaccinations began. And then the reports started trickling in, starting with a report by an Idaho physician who reported that uh, one of his patients had developed muscle weakness in the arm that had been vaccinated. And, and that's actually kind of unusual because polio typically presents first as weakness in the legs. And then there were other reports, a total of 250 reports of vaccine-induced polio and a total of 10 deaths. So of course, vaccinations were halted and an investigation was started. And the investigation showed that all of the vaccine-induced polio cases could be uh, localized to one manufacturer, Cutter Labs in California. And apparently what happened is during the manufacturing process, the viruses had clumped and the chemical formaldehyde that's used to kill the virus couldn't get into the center of the clumps. And so there was still live virus there. And those who were vaccinated with that vaccine preparation were actually administered live virus and they developed polio. Well, fortunately that led to uh, much greater regulation and oversight of the manufacturing process. And then ultimately the vaccinations uh, resumed. Within about five years, the number of paralytic uh, polio cases were reduced from uh, more than 27,000 to about 2,500, you know, about one-tenth of that value. And the next year, in 1961, the FDA uh, approved Sabin's attenuated live polio virus or the oral, oral polio uh, vaccine. And the attenuated live virus, uh, I believe, is, uh, is a better virus because it, it better mimics the actual polio virus itself, the um, disease-causing virus. And it causes a more robust immune response, particularly in the gut. So uh, as I was mentioning before, polio virus will replicate in the intestine and get shed in feces. And it's, that's the way it's spread into the environment for oral ingestion by others who become infected. So the attenuated vaccine would prevent the replication of the virus in the gut, and so you wouldn't get the spread of the virus. Well, um, so the attenuated live vaccine is, is then the predominant vaccine in, in the US. By 1968, um, 
the number of paralytic cases was much smaller than 100 a year, so a very small number. And the killed vaccine was phased out. But over time, there was renewed interest in an improved killed vaccine such that in 1997, so you know, only uh, nine years later, the uh, improved killed vaccine was reinstated. And the reason for this interest in the killed vaccine is that in a very small number of cases, about one in 2.4 million vaccinations with the attenuated uh, vaccine, there would be, there would occur a case of uh, vaccine-induced polio, and usually in an immunocompromised person. But one in 2.4 million is still not zero. So by the year 2000, the attenuated virus vaccine was uh, phased out in the United States and the improved killed virus became the only vaccine for polio used in the, in the US. And this was fine because by this time, the country had developed herd immunity. The, uh, predominance of the virus, the poliovirus, in the environment was very low, so the chances of an unimmunized person contracting the virus was diminishingly small. But the uh, live attenuated vaccine is still used in other countries where polio is endemic, and because, as I said, it, it produces an immune, a robust immune response, helps prevent spread of the disease, it's cheaper to make, it's uh, easier to distribute. And because it's an oral vaccine, you just take a drop uh, in the mouth or on a sugar cube. So it's very easy to administer. So you might be thinking, uh, I'm gonna end this with a, a rant about how um, you shouldn't rush vaccine development. You should, the COVID vaccine development shouldn't be rushed. But that's absolutely not what I'm going to say because I don't believe that at all. I, I don't believe that the current vaccines are rushed. They are a new focus. Uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is a new, vac a new virus for vaccine development, but the technology and scientific knowledge has been around for a long time. And I, I'd like to cherry pick just a few scientific discoveries to, to try to support my argument. So let's start about 100 years ago. Uh, it was in the 1930s that antibodies were isolated in, in their proteins. They were characterized uh, and they were found to be gamma globulins in the blood. So we've, we've known a lot about antibodies for uh, almost 100 years. It's been about 70 years since we've known that uh, long-term immunity is, is the result of certain white blood cells called lymphocytes, also called T and B cells. So we've, we've known about the basis of long-term immunity for a very long time as well. Even the quote unquote modern term epitope has been around for uh, 60 years. So let me tell you what an epitope is. So if you can see this graphic of the corona of the uh, COVID-19 virus, and you've probably seen it way too often, you know that on the surface of the virus, uh, there is a protein called the spike or S protein. And this 
uh, spike protein is how the virus interacts with the cell that it intends to infect. Well, the spike protein is a pretty big protein and there are many parts to the protein and the, the various parts are called epitopes. So this part of the molecule, this epitope here is interacting with the cell the virus is going to infect. So you can imagine if your body makes an antibody against this epitope, that it will probably prevent infection. It will be a neutralizing antibody. Now, will antibodies against some of these other epitopes be um, protective antibodies? Well, we, we don't know. So it's important that vaccines have uh, expressed in them the correct epitopes to give us protective immunity. But that's something we have known about for 60 plus years. So it, it's really not uh, a novel concept. Well, some of the vaccines for COVID are uh, using mRNA technology. So let's talk about mRNA very briefly. mRNA or messenger RNA is the intermediary between our genes, which are made out of DNA, and our proteins, uh, which carry out functions in our cells. So mRNA, it was officially discovered uh, in 1961, although you know, it had been postulated to exist quite a number of years before that. In 1986, um, the first vaccine uh, that that involved a nucleic acid, DNA and RNA are both nucleic acids. The first FDA approved uh, DNA vaccine was uh, in existence. It was a DNA vaccine for hepatitis. So even though that's a DNA, not an RNA vaccine, still the concept of using nucleic acids as a vaccine is, is a 35 years old. I think that's the math, 35. Uh, a year later, CRISPR was discovered. CRISPR are DNA sequences that are um, used in the very elegant and, and tailored genetic engineering that's possible today. And, you know, it, it was even 30 years ago, that's a pretty long time, maybe longer than some of you have been alive, that uh, it was shown that you could inject mRNA into a living organism. In this case, in 1990, it was a mouse, and show that the organism will make proteins um, uh, encoded for by the mRNA. So that's the basis of the technology for the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, right? They're mRNA vaccines. So it's been 30 years uh, that we've known that that particular method is possible. Uh, also, these mRNA vaccines are, are encapsulated in a fatty layer uh, called a lipid nanoparticle, shown here um, in this slide. Uh, lipid nanoparticles have been around for 30 years as well. Uh, the first patent for them was filed in 1991. So I'd like to just end by saying that, uh, at least end my spiel by saying that um, I, the reason I don't feel that the vaccines are being rushed, at least not the develop the scientific development of the vaccine, is because 
they are built on a very uh, large and deep foundation of scientific knowledge and technology development. So just to let you know, I get my layperson's information about COVID-19 vaccines from the New York Times uh, coronavirus vaccine tracker. You can just Google it and find this website. And um, you can get a lot of information there. Now I made these particular tables for myself, but this is the kind of information you could get at the website. Who developed the vaccine? What is the vaccine made out of? What's the status of it? Is it approved? Is it, is it for emergency use? Is it in clinical trials? And there is a lot of information there if you are interested in, in sorting through. So I am going to end and let the conversation actually begin. If you would like to uh, contact me later with questions, I'm perfectly happy to have you do that. You can email me at laura.jensky at snowboundstories.com or you can go to my website, snowboundstories.com. I have a contact form there and you, know, you read about what I'm up to nowadays, which is writing mystery novels. So let me go ahead and end my slides and we'll see what kinds of questions we have. Thank you so much for all the information okay. in there. Um, I'm definitely not a science person. So a lot of that was really informative for me. Um, you know, I heard about Jenner and smallpox vaccine, but that was kind of where my knowledge really stopped. Um, one thing that I've heard a lot in the public sphere, you know, with comparisons with, you know, vaccines in general is, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine and the HIV slash AIDS vaccine and how HIV doesn't have one yet. However, there's been a lot of work towards that. So I was wondering if you, um, if you have the knowledge, if you're able to talk about that a little bit. I'm, I'm actually not able to talk about that. I haven't uh, kept up with uh, the mm -hmm. modern advances on the HIV vaccines. Yeah, because I also, so, I do know that's a whole separate beast in its own yeah. right as in terms of a virus. It, it, it is. Um, I will say that, you know, some of the basic technology is shared from one vaccine to another. Um, it's the nature of the virus and what part of the virus you need to make an immune response against that uh, requires the, the specialized tailoring, mm -hmm. uh, which, which means that you, know, you really do have to focus on an individual virus to create the vaccine for it. And I'm sure that the HIV vaccine has a really interesting story. I just didn't. Um, keep up with it over the years. Yeah. Oh, well, you answered my next question, which was gonna be, you know, what makes vaccines, you know, similar, but also kind of different um, between each other. But what role does the public play in, you know, the production speed of a vaccine outside of volunteering for a clinical trial? You know, cause some of those vaccines and the diseases you talked about had, you know, a really long period from, you know, starting obviously some of them were very old diseases, like you said you know, to a vaccine compared to others. So is the question, what can we do as private citizens? Yeah, well, not necessarily that, but you know, what do, like what role can we play in terms of, you know, vaccine development? 
So actually, yeah, that's pretty much what you said. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have I have a couple different answers. Choose the one you like. Uh, one of them is exactly what you were saying, mm -hmm. and that is participating in clinical trials. Um, I, I don't know if you were paying attention to the numbers, but the uh, clinical trials for the various COVID vaccines were um, in the tens of thousands of participants. Compare that to uh, the, the um, polio clinical trial in 1954, where there was well over a million participants. So clinical trials, uh, because they're expensive, they, they usually don't involve millions of people, but, but you do need tens of thousands. So if you are able and willing, you, sh you know, that's one thing you can do to help facilitate vaccine development. And we need people of all ages, you know, usually vaccines are tested first on adults and then, you know, usually adults perhaps up to the age of 55 and then they're tested on older adults and then they're tested on much younger people. So um, yeah, participating, you know, and then there's money. Um, you might want to let your uh, representatives know that they, they need to be supporting not only end phase development where, you know, this the last few steps before you start widely manufacturing uh, a vaccine. I can tell you um, that probably every scientific discovery that has had commercial value started out in some academic lab somewhere funded by the federal government usually. Um, and it would seem like such an esoteric thing to study. And you know, the, my, my favorite example, um, it's not a vaccine story, but it's still my favorite example and, and I'm sticking with it. So in the 1960s, um, so the scientists were injecting thymus glands, thymus gland that's right here, right over your heart, thymus glands from uh, one strain of mouse into uh, another strain of mouse and vice versa. And then they were taking the antibodies out and testing the antibodies. And it, yeah, you might stop and think, well, that is like the dumbest thing to actually spend federal money on. But really, that was the start of our understanding of CD4 and CD4 eight positive T cells, which helped us then to understand AIDS and, and then help to combat AIDS. So if that work with mice had not been funded in 1966, the work on AIDS would have been set back you know, a decade. Um, I, I don't know if you remember, Proxmire, I think was the name of the senator who used to give out the Golden Fleece Awards for uh, scientific studies that he thought were um, not worthy. Well, you know, sometimes these esoteric studies are worthy. And so I would argue you, you need to make sure that basic science is supported because that's going to be what vaccines eventually uh, use to, for their final stages of development. Yeah, and without that basic, like fundamental building block, you really can't go further. No, you, if you don't understand, and this is true of anything, it's not just science, it's not just vaccines. If you don't understand the basics of a process, then you really can't, you can't troubleshoot, you can't improve it, and you, you may not even be able to conduct it. So um, 
So yes, you, you have to understand the basics and it's particularly important in, in science when you're talking about something as complicated as a vaccine. And would you consider the annual flu shot a vaccine, you know, since it is something you should be or you know, have to do every year for that immunity? Uh, well, yes, it is a vaccine. Uh, there's very various formulations of it that's usually available. There are um, killed virus vaccines for mm -hmm. influenza. There are um, there are some vaccines that have been engineered, so you just get uh, a, the important proteins from the virus, and the proteins are used as a vaccine. There's um, at least there was last year still a live attenuated vaccine that was a nasal spray. So uh, I personally get a vaccine um, every year for a flu. Um, I've had flu once in my life. I never ever want it again. I was like in my early 40s at the time and I was never ever as sick as I was then. So flu shot, you know, easy. Uh, most insurance companies pay for it. Um, they're safe. You maybe feel a little crummy for a little for a few hours, but man, definitely worth it. And then, uh, in your experience in your research with the COVID nineteen vaccine, there's been talk of you know a booster twelve months after your second dose. Um, do you think with that vaccine it could become you know something similar with the flu shot where you get a little booster every year? I would not be at all surprised if that ends up being the regimen that's used. Um, the early results tend to suggest that the mRNA uh, vaccines are uh, long lasting, the immunity is long lasting. And, and mm -hmm. we do know that attenuated virus vaccines like the Johnson Johnson vaccine should produce long-term immunity. But um, even well-established vaccines require booster. Um, tetanus, rabies. These are all things that on occasion, and I would not be surprised if we find that with the, the creation of a number of variants, you know, if the COVID vaccine continues to remain in the population, if we don't reach herd immunity soon enough, we're gonna have variants and then the annual shots, the annual boosters would help to combat the variants. So I, I don't see any downside to it other than cost. Mm -hmm. And then speaking of variants, what happens when a virus or a disease, you know, mutates in terms of vaccine production? Does it, you know, set it back by a decent amount or does it just kind of force you to, you know, shift, you know, your perspective of producing that vaccine? Yeah, I, you know, and I think the influenza vaccines are an ex excellent example of how this is going to be handled. Um, the influenza viruses mutate um, readily, so that every year you, you need a different, slightly different formulation. Um, I don't think I would say that it's a setback in any way. I mean, it's it's just a, a methodical process that uh, that scientists would go to to try to figure out the probability of what particular variant is going to be um, most frequently found and to make sure that the vaccines protect you against that variant. And you know, in many cases, the 
the new viruses that arise will still have, here's my favorite word, epitopes that, um, that you already have some immunity against. So you will already have some basal level of protection. You, it's not like you have to start from ground zero um, every year. And then how has, um, you know, more tr like folk traditional medicine and indigenous medical practices like influenced either vaccines or treatment of these various diseases? Well, uh, unfortunately, the only one that pops right into my, my mind is the one I've, I've already talked about, and that is the, the, the history mm -hmm. of smallpox. Um, you know, I, I wish I had another example off the top of my head, but I don't. But it, truly, it is the case that, that over time, populations have found various remedies uh, available in nature uh, to help. They may not be effective like a, a, a very well-researched, very well-manufactured vaccine might be, but they, they have been shown over time to have some effect. That's an excellent question. You know, I, I'm gonna have to look that up. I, I'd like to know more about that. And I, I honestly don't. I always love stumping people with yeah, well, those you're fun questions. Doing an excellent <laughs> job tonight. Thank you. Um, <laughs> And then I know you talked about you know smallpox being completely eradicated, uh, but you know what happens? Like, is there any true way to know? Like, I don't want to be like that paranoid person, but is there a true way to know that a virus has been completely eliminated? You know, and if it hasn't, how do you deal with that? You know, sudden resurgence if it does flare back up. Okay, so well, of course, it's not totally eliminated because we mm -hmm. do have laboratory stockpiles of it. Um, but that's not what you're asking. You're asking, will it pop up again in nature? Um, you know, that's not impossible. It arose once. So we know that the probability that it can arise is higher than zero. Um, if it did arise, it, the virus would have to find a human in order to infect it. Because as I said, there mm -hmm. are no animal reservoirs for, or vectors for this virus, for the smallpox virus. Um, and so then what are the chances, you know, so the, we're doing some mathematics here. What are the mm -hmm. chances that a, a very um, infrequent mutation that creates this smallpox virus will actually also find a human that it can infect and the human has no um, resistance to it. I, I think the probability of that happening will grow with time as fewer and fewer people have any immunity to smallpox. Now, I was vaccinated against smallpox. I still have a scar on my arm to show where they scratched um, the vaccine virus into my skin. But, you know, after my generation, I don't know how many people uh, have been vaccinated. So at some point, there will be no um, immune people. So if smallpox does arise, as improbable as that might be, but it should a virus mutate and become the equivalent of a smallpox virus, and it finds a human to infect, our best uh, remedy is that we do have these vaccines in a stockpile and we could 
um, tamp down the disease very quickly before it spreads throughout the population. We know that it spreads pretty quickly. And we would also know how to make the virus pretty quickly using modern technology. There's one thing that I always found super interesting and this, you know, again, could just be the way that I pay attention to media and also the way the media reports on it. But I always feel like with a lot of these different diseases that can be fatal, it always seems like there's random flare-ups that happen and then it just kind of goes, you know, back to being quiet for a little bit, like with Ebola, you know, and SARS. And again, like I said, that could just be the way I've seen it portrayed in the media as like, oh, it's a random flare-up, you know, here. And then it just kind of dies down a little bit. Is that you know, an accurate representation of how some of these viruses that are still around kind of act, like act in a way? Well, and, and you bring up an excellent example when you talk about like the, the first SARS outbreak and the MERS uh, outbreak, which is a related virus. Those are viruses, uh, it's, a, it's a type of virus that actually will live in animals. Mm -hmm. So you have a reservoir and it doesn't have to be spread person to person. You, the virus can live in an animal. And then um, it's some, if all the stars aligned and the, the animal is shedding the virus in a place where a person can pick it up and that person has no immunity, then you know, it kind of sets the stage for uh, an outbreak. If, if there isn't an animal reservoir for a particular disease causing organism, then once you eradicate it from humans, you would expect that it's gone until you mm -hmm. have some almost improbable mutation event to make it reappear. Well, thank you for all of your answers. Unfortunately, <laughs> we are out of time tonight. Um, I will definitely be posting your contact um, email when we post the recording of this that way people can reach out to you for further questions. And one thing I definitely want to commend is, you know, like I said earlier, I'm not a science guy and I definitely think you explained everything in like the most understandable way. Because well, I I'm, think, you I'm, know, learning about I'm vaccines can definitely be one of those intimidating topics. Well, I, I have to admit it, it is one of my favorite subjects and I can get pretty excited about it. Um, but, but thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to do this. This is a lot of fun and I really enjoy it. So uh, have a good evening. Yeah, you too. Have a good evening, everyone. <laughs>